Good afternoon. This is Cedric McCoy, nurse practitioner at UChicago Medicine and today's host for the UChicago Medicine's Community Health Focus Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in to our show today. Give us a call, ask your questions, or just make comments. The number to call is the WVON listener hotline, 773-591-1690. Let me give that to you one more time, 773-591-1690. So first of all, Happy New Year to all of you listening on WVON and the viewers on Facebook Live. As we start the new year, the Community Health Focus Hour, we want to put a spotlight on a condition that reinforces the fact that health screenings are so important. January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and cervical cancer is a highly preventable form of cancer that can be identified and treated early through regular screenings and the immunization of youth with HPV vaccine. Cervical cancer used to be the leading cause of cancer death for women in the United States. However, over the last 40 years, the number of cases and the deaths from cervical cancer have decreased. HPV vaccine protects against cervical cancer as well as head, neck, and oral cancers resulting from the human papillomavirus. So join us today as we discuss cervical cancer, the importance of screening, and the HPV vaccine. Screenings lead to survival. So let me introduce my guest. First up in studio with me is Dr. Lee, Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, UChicago Medicine Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little about yourself. Thank you. I'm a GYN oncologist at University of Chicago. I treat women who have pre-cancer and cancer, and I'm very excited to share the message of screening promoting survival. Thank you so much for the show. Also in studio to my right here, I have Miss Paris Thomas, or Paris, Director of Program Operations Equal Hope, formerly known as Metropolitan Breast Cancer Task Force. Welcome to the show, Paris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm the Director of Program Operations at Equal Hope, overseeing all of our programs, and we're really excited to share what we are doing in the community and be a part of this today. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Next up on the line, I have two amazing callers. First up is Brenda E., Circle Cancer Survivor. Brenda, are you there with me? Yes, I am. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, tell me just a little bit about yourself. My name is Brenda E. I'm a female. <laughs> um, Dr. Lee is my doctor, and she just asked me to call in and ask a couple of questions on the uh All right. Well, thank you so much. And last but definitely not least, Maria T., you are also a cervical cancer survivor. Are you there with me? Yes, I'm right here. Hello. Hey, Maria. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a mother of two boys, teenagers. I I just finished my treatment last year, which was only a couple months ago, and I'm uh, very happy to have found out that my cancer was treatable. So I'm happy to share my experience with everyone. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, ladies. I look forward to hearing your stories, and we're going to get to those a little bit later on today. And thank you for your courage for coming on the show to share that with us. So let's get started. Dr. Lee, tell us what is cervical cancer and what do we know about the causes of it? So cervical cancer is a cancer or an abnormal growth of cells that turns into cancer that starts in the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus or the womb. Anybody who has a cervix can get cervix cancer. About 14 to 15,000 women a year are diagnosed in the United States, so this has decreased a lot. But it's still really important because, like you said, it's, it's highly preventable or also highly able to be screened and found early. It remains the number two cancer death, like the cause of the, the second leading cause in terms of cancer deaths for women between the ages of 20 and 39. So this is still really super important to be able to address. Wow. Wow. And so when it comes to 
higher incidence of cervical cancer? Is there a race that we see it more often in? So again, any women, anybody who has a cervix can get cervix cancer. But when you look at like the national data, we definitely see that there's a higher incidence, meaning like the higher rates per 100,000 women in black or African-American women, Hispanic women, and in Native American women compared to white women. But that there's also a difference in how women survive this cancer based on race, unfortunately, as well. Really? Dive in on that a little bit. I think there's a lot of different factors. But again, the number one factor is a lot of women who maybe don't get screened because of other mm-hmm. reasons, including insurance reasons, not feeling like it's a problem for them because they're older or may not need to have get screened. They may have barriers that we'll talk a little bit about later. And there's also sort of like, you know, sort of racial injustice that we know that happens in the medical care system for follow-up and appropriate care. So there's a whole spectrum of problems, but I think our important message is that is getting screened and, and being really proactive. It's important because as I was doing my research, I was seeing that there may not be symptoms with cervical cancer. So how often is this the case? And if there are symptoms, what are we normally seeing? So you're right. Most women may not have symptoms with cervix cancer, and their cancer is found because they go for their annual exam or they go for screening, and it gets found on a PAP or HPV test and gets worked up. That's kind of, if we have to find an early cancer, that's the way we want to find it. Sometimes women will find symptoms of bleeding is the most problem, you know, like irregular bleeding outside of their period, abnormal sort of vaginal discharge that seems sort of funky and different, bleeding after sex, pelvic pain. Those are some common symptoms that people can have. Okay. And you, and you mentioned PAPs in that as well. So I'll pass them as soon as the main reason. How is it overallly diagnosed? So a pap smear is sort of an internal vaginal exam. So we take a little scraping off of the cervix and it just shows the cells. And then if that, those cells are abnormal or the HPV is positive for the high risk type, then we may take a small pinch of tissue that's called a biopsy. Okay. And is it painful? Well, I'll ask Maria and Brenda. Nobody, you know, <laughs> loves to go for these tests, but they're important. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I describe it as being like slightly uncomfortable when you're having it done, but important. So I don't know, Maria, Brenda. Well, it wasn't painful anything. Um, just a normal because I went all the time for my, you know, for my annual. So it was something usual, you know. So it wasn't painful anything like that. You know, you just it wasn't painful. No, it's not painful. All right. And when you, it's just something you're kind of used to. Let me ask you a question now that I got you guys here and we're going to really dive into your story. But one of the things I just want to really quickly ask you a question, when you got the diagnosis, what was the first thing? Like, how did it make you feel? Scary. You know, you're like, oh, really? You know, you didn't, you just, oh, wow. It was like stuck in me with this, you know, so it was scary. How about you? you? Know, but like I said, yeah. How about you, Maria? Yeah, I agree with Brenda. I think it's kind of, I would describe it like a bad dream. Like, is this really happening to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, this cannot be it. I, I'm, maybe I'm going to wake up out of this and it's really not, you know, because I don't know in your, in your situation, Brenda, but I, I didn't have any symptoms. So I felt healthy. I didn't have any issues. So I thought it was like a mind, you know, nothing big deal. But yeah, it was bedroom. <laughs> All right. I'm going to come back to that, too, and then ask Dr. Lee. Actually, you know, we're here. Dr. Lee. Yeah. <clears throat> so when people are getting, like, when Maria Brenner are getting this information, you're passing on to them. You know, how do you help them cope with that? I think the biggest thing is to let 
everybody know that like, you know, there's usually a team of doctors and nurses and community partners and, you know, family and friends who want to support you. I think it's important to know that cervix cancer is very treatable. Sometimes it's treated with surgery alone. Sometimes it's treated with surgery and radiation and chemotherapy, or sometimes it's with chemo or radiation alone, but very treatable and we can get you through it. Okay. Fantastic. And so we're talking about screening here, right? And so at how often and at what age so will women be getting pap smears for cervical cancer? Definitely nobody needs to get pap smears before the age of 21. There's different groups and organizations that recommend either starting at 21 or 25. And to be really sure, talking to your doctor about getting a pap smear and an HPV test. Okay. And Paris, you've been quiet over there. Yeah. Let me bring you into the show real quick. <laughs> so Paris, what do you feel are some of the barriers that uh, women may have that prevent them from getting screened for cervical cancer? Yeah, so I think there's several barriers when you talk about cervical cancer. I think the first would have to be around the screening guidelines. Those have altered over the last couple of years. So at some point it was every year, and then now it's every three years, depending, or every five years. And so I think that women in the community are really unsure of when to go. And I think incorporated with that is fragmented care. So I may go and get my pap smear from one physician one year, and then maybe I needed a follow-up, or maybe I was told to come back in three years, but I don't know, and I see another physician the next year. And so I think there's so much fragmented care that women just don't know. And then they, there's, did I get a pap smear or was it a pelvic exam? So, good point. Yeah, that's a really big Very thing that we point. run into. Because a lot of people may have just got a pelvic exam but not a pap smear. And many women were like, oh, we, we got that. That's not. And we're like, well, did you actually get like an HPV test? Did they do what they needed to do? But, you know, I think there's a lot of just misinformation and just miscommunication as far as when it comes to cervical screenings. And so that's something that we run into. I think the last two things that it really comes is access and affordability. So um, 100%. there's a lot of women who are still without insurance and have huge barriers to care where they can't get and access the care that they need. A lot of women just kind of I see the emergency room when I have an emergency, and that's it. I don't really go every year. I have other priorities. I have children. I have bills. I have work. There's other things that come before my health because I'm the care provider, and i got to take care of all these other things before I can take care of me. And so I think those are some of the main barriers that we run into. So affordability access, the screening guidelines, and then just the fragmented care would be kind of what I think. So, Paris, that was perfect. That <laughs> totally hits everything that I think is important. I, I'm going to take that recording and use it over again. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me ask you a question then here because you, you brought up a really good point. You know, some of the guidelines you've, we know in medicine, guidelines change. You know, they change from year to year and try to keep up with everything. It, it's, it's difficult, right? And so, one year is one every every year, then it's every three years. Is there a population, Dr. Lee, that you're like, you know what? I want you every year. I know the guidelines say every yeah. two years. This is what I want from you. I would say that if you've had a history of abnormal pap smears, even if they haven't been that severe, then you kind of fall off that guideline pathway and your doctor should possibly be doing pap smears much more frequently. So this is where it's super important to be able to kind of know what your pap smear result was and to like, you know, really force your doctor, or your healthcare provider to be like, explain this to me. Like, yeah. what is it? Like, why is that? And then also doing an annual exam, even if you may or may not need a pap smear, you're still getting a pelvic exam, you're still talking about like well health, may be able to catch that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who get cervix cancer don't have a primary care provider to even do that for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's another risk factor, not having a primary care provider, not having insurance, and you know, poverty, all these other things, even if you know, 
it can happen to anybody, but still. Okay, Paris, let's talk about Equal Hope. So when we talk about, like, in terms of cancer centers, what's your relations? Yeah, so Equal Hope is a nonprofit. We work with cancer centers in several different ways. The first way is we work with a quality consortium, and we basically collect quality data with hospitals and cancer centers and implement projects to improve around cervical cancer. The second way is basically our education and navigation programs. We kind of collaborate with several cancer centers to basically educate the community and navigate women to quality screenings as well as comprehensive treatment because, as Dr. Lee was saying earlier, you know, when you're in that cancer center, you kind of got everyone in-house versus being fragmented. And so our job is to go in the community and find these women and get them to the cancer center so that they can get the treatment and the quality care that they need. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, we're going to dive in a lot more because I, I went online and so I want to, I want to learn more about it. I want our viewers to uh, hear more about what EcoHope does. Last question in this segment, I'll turn to Dr. Lee. So Dr. Lee, what are some of your concerns on how screenings for cancer can be affected by what's happening with COVID in our community? Because COVID changed everything it in 2021. Totally did. It totally did. And I think, obviously, when in the beginning of this, we weren't sure. And a lot of people were told, don't come for your screening, such as don't come for cervix cancer screening, pap smears, colon cancer, breast cancer, mammograms. And we saw this really dramatic decline of 80% in screening. Wow. And it hasn't come back to normal. So if we keep that up and we don't keep our screening going... We are going to get women who are diagnosed later, not curable, or like later, more advanced stages. And so I think our big push is like we're living with COVID. We have safe ways to get screening. And so people should come and get it done. All right. I think that's fantastic. You know, the first HPV vaccine was FDA approved in 2006. Uh, It was called Gardasil. And I think uh, we've done a show. We've we've mentioned this before. So now there are three three vaccines, Gardasil 9, Gardasil, as well as Cervix. However, Gardasil 9 is the only one used in the United States today. Initially, there was, and there still is pushback about vaccinations. And so when we come back, we're going to talk about the vaccinations and other aspects of cervical cancer with Dr. Lee, Paris Thomas, and two amazing women that introduced you in the beginning that are recovered from cervical cancer. Welcome back. We are here with my guests, Dr. Nita Lee, Paris Thomas, Maria, and Brenda discussing cervical cancer and the vaccine that is effective in preventing the HPV virus. Please give us a call if you survive cervical cancer or if you just have questions about cervical cancer as well as the vaccine, 773-591-1690. Once again, 773-591-1690. Dr. Lee, what is HPV and is there a stigma about HPV out there that we got to overcome? Yes, HPV stands for human papillomavirus, and it's actually a really common virus. There's like hundreds of types of it, like over 200 types of it, but some of the types that are labeled high-risk types are the kind that can infect this, the, the tissue, and then that can cause, if the infection stays there, a cancer or precancer. The problem is because HPV happens to be a virus that likes genital tissue, people, it's obviously considered to be sort of a sexually transmitted disease, and so there's a lot of stigma related to that because people feel like, oh, like I'm not somebody who is promiscuous, or I'm not somebody, but it affects all of us. Like, like 80% of people will have HPV at some point oh, in their wow. lives. 
and it's like the common cold, quite honestly. But not everybody will get the high risk type, and not everybody's body will. Some people, most people, will clear it, and some people's won't. And we don't. We're, we're trying to understand a lot of those factors. And <coughs> some of the when we talk about, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. What are some of the symptoms of HPV? So HPV itself doesn't really have symptoms, so mm-hmm. most people won't know they have HPV. Men, for sure, will never know they have HPV, usually unless they have some of the low-risk types that cause, like, genital warts or something like that. But the high-risk types are, sometimes don't have a symptom unless somebody's developed a precancer or a cancer. Oh, wow. Okay, so Paris, what are some of the concerns about youth receiving the vaccine that you've, that you've heard out there? Yeah, so I think there's several um, concerns that people think about. So I think that the side effects outweigh the good of the vaccine. I know there is a lot of anti-vaccinators and they're concerned about what is this going to do. I think also when it comes to the vaccine, people associate it with sexuality. So my 11 and 12 year old isn't sexual, so why do I need this vaccine? Or is this going to make my child promiscuous and things like that? So those are some of the common things that I hear. Um, which are totally myths and untrue. <laughs> I think, Dr. Lee, have you heard anything Yeah, else? no, I think there, we've actually done studies to look at, like, did it change the age that boys or girls became sexually active, and it didn't, and it didn't make them, like, start sex earlier. The safety profile is very well established around the world, and the U.S. is kind of behind most countries in really? terms of vaccination. Okay, so parents. I know parents out there, someone maybe listen to the show. It's like, ah, another vaccine I got to give my daughter. So, or maybe even our sons. We'll talk yes. about that in a second. <laughs> so when are parents urged to have their children get the vaccine? So it's really thought that the we should be getting started around like around preteen, like 11 or 12, as early as nine and up until age 26, because it's thought that the most prevention and the best way to have the vaccine be as effective as possible is in that young age group. And, you know, study countries that have done the vaccine and just said, oh, we have a cancer prevention vaccine. Let's get it rolled out. And did it all world like, you know, kind of kid wise. They've shown that like. Girls who got the vaccine before age 77 had an 88% risk, decreased risk of getting cervical cancer. Well, say that one more time. So girls who got the vaccine younger than age 17 had a much higher up to 88% risk difference of getting cervical cancer. Wow. Yeah. So these are studies that are being done in countries that rolled out the vaccine and didn't have the stigma associated with it. So just like any vaccines you hear as we're going through COVID, we know that we have to have two shots for COVID. You know, with this vaccine, how many shots is it? And is it, I'm assuming it's spaced out. How is it spaced out? Yeah, so if you get there, if you... If you are younger than 15, when you start getting your vaccine, you only need two vaccine vaccinations, and you can get those about three months apart. And then if you're older, you have to get a ther- series of three vaccines. Okay. Although there's some data to suggest that even the first one will start to help. Okay. And if for adults out there, you know, this vaccine, you know, it's... I was, I was reading and again doing my research. I saw like just 26, but you're telling me that it's a little longer. Yes. So if you're an adult, is it too late? When is it it's too late? It's not too late. It's recommended definitely 9 to 26, like very strongly recommended. After age 26, you should talk to your doctor, but it is available, FDA approved, approved by the CDC and the immunization bodies that recommend vaccines up till age 45. 45? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's great news to hear. And initially this vaccine, as I, as I just basically just kind of early said, it was basically aimed at females. But now we're seeing males. 
are getting urged to get this. Uh, what are you hearing about that? Yeah, so boys and girls, men and women should get it because we want the whole population because obviously, like, they're, you know, we want it to be, like, the population to be protected. So girls getting it from boys, boys versus vice versa. And then also, like, there's a lot of other cancers that HPV causes, head and neck, back of the throat cancers, anal cancers, penile cancers, other, other things like that. And the truth is, those cancers, like back of the throat or oral cancers related to HPV, are actually increasing, and they may overtake even cervix cancer for in men specifically. Wow! Wow! Okay, Paris. All right, we're coming back to you here. All right. So I looked at Equal Hope website, and I was impressed with all the services that you guys have to provide. For, you know, for women. So tell us about your services, starting with those related to cervical cancer, and let's move on after that. Yeah, so Equal Hope is an amazing organization. We serve women in the Chicagoland area to prevent cervical breast and breast cancer. So for cervical cancer, we have navigators who are amazing. They're from the community. We have community health workers, and they're from the community. And they're working with women to educate and reach to them and teach them about cervical cancer and about their screening guidelines and then get them to a free screening um, I'm sorry, a free cervical cancer screening at one of either our medical home partners or get them through the Illinois Breast and Cervical Cancer Program, which is a great program for women who are uninsured. We have several other programs as well. We have a quality consortium, as I stated before, that we're working with not only cervical cancer but breast cancer to collect quality data and implement projects. And then we're also doing advocacy and policy work around this. So we're in Springfield putting legislation in place and just advocating so that women can get the quality screenings that they need. But Within our cervical screening project, we have other navigations. We're navigating women to free breast screenings, and we also have a new project where we have a medical homes placement where we're navigating both men and women to basically a medical home. As Dr. Lee said before, many people don't have a primary care physician, and we found that in our own system of women that we navigate. And so we're paying for their first visit to get them established care. And so Equal Hope is there to basically provide any type of screening that a woman could need from breast to cervical to even getting them their established medical home care where they could get other needs addressed. Oh, wow. This is fantastic. And so where are you guys at? Like where, where you say you're getting out of the communities. Is it a primarily south side thing? Is it all over Chicago? What is it? So we are all over the Chicagoland area. You can catch us everywhere. Our community health workers, you will see them south, west, north. They are an amazing group. everywhere. We work with everyone. We work with multiple cancer centers and facilities here in the Chicagoland area to get you to a neighborhood community center that you need to. So if you, whether you live on north, west, suburbs, we can get you to a facility in your neighborhood and get you those screenings. Oh, wow. Wow. That is absolutely fantastic. So we, we got a question that's coming up, and I'll get to that, I'll get to that shortly. Um, let me ask you this. One of the things I like to do on the show is I want to give the callers what to, a, a sense of what to expect when they're dealing with this. You know, in a sense of they come to the hospital, they got an appointment with Dr. Lee, and we're going to talk to them about their options. You, they got a pap smear, and it's on you now. They, they test. It's positive. Yeah. What so should they expect? if they've had a pap smear, then if it's abnormal to a certain extent or if there's a lot of HPV that's been persistent, then we might do the next step, which is a biopsy. Um, that can be done in the office. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then sometimes once women are diagnosed with an actual cancer, we have to talk to their th- through their treatment. We have to decide, is this a early small cancer? Do they want fertility? And then we can plan around and specialize the cancer care for their individual cancer. Okay. And so what are some of those options? You mentioned briefly, like, if they have to go through 
I think you said radiation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's, what's it, what's so radiation is a very powerful tool to be able to use x-rays that are sort of directed at the cervix and the surrounding tissues. It's actually, it's kind of a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big process where sometimes radiation can be every day, Monday through Friday for about four to five weeks. And sometimes we give a low dose chemotherapy with that to make the radiation work better. There's side effects. There are side effects we get people through. There's medicines to help that. And then there's also a recovery period afterwards. Some women will need surgery before that, and some women will just need the chemo radiation. Okay. All right. So we got a caller here. On the line is Don. Don, are you there with me? I am. Don, welcome to the show, man. How are you feeling today? I am fantastic. All right. You got you got our attention. So this is this is my question. I have a 15 year old teenager. Her pediatrician came to me when she was 11. She started um, her monthly at the age of 10, and she was asking me about have I made up my mind about giving Maya. I'm oh, sorry, I gave my child's name. She's done that. Giving her the um, H- HPV vaccine. And I said, no, but you can educate me more on it because I don't know enough about it um, to make this very short because it can be very long. Um, she focused on the prevent, it can prevent ovarian cancer. And it's usually given because of, uh, it can stop. I heard one of the doctors say 80% of young of women, it will prevent cancer in the long run. But the information was so minute mm. that I was lost because it was not the information. It was not enough information given to how long the vaccinations or the vaccines already have been out. Why is it focused only on girls and teenagers? And it's, this is very tricky because it. I heard someone say um, it goes into the. It would go into the conversation of being sexually active, which was if you're not sexually active, then why would you need it? Oh, good questions. Good questions. questions. Yeah, I'm. Uh, Dr. Yeah, Lee, I'm, I'm ready. No, I'm just kidding. I, Thank that, you so much. I think you brought up really good points. One point was that for sure, asking your doctor to clarify and get more information. CDC has a CDC.gov has like a fantastic parent section as well, so that's good to know. The issue of, like, why do we give the vaccine before anybody's sexually active is really just like any other vaccine. We give it before there's any even chance, remote chance, that the person would be exposed to HPV because that's when your immune system is the strongest to be able to develop that immunity. So, like, 10, 20 years from now, when somebody's, like, ready to, like, start a family or they're ready to become intimate with somebody, they're protected already. So we never assume that the children who are getting the vaccine are ready for sex. Or, and it's almost like we don't even need the pediatricians to say that's related. It's more just that we have a cancer prevention vaccine that we know we can give to boys and girls and prevent a cancer that could happen to them 20 or 30 years later. And sometimes I think because of the stigma, I feel like if somebody was like, oh, there's a cancer vaccine for breast or prostate, people would be like lined up around the block. Mm. But because of the stigma related to this like sexual, you know, concern, I do feel like people are worried about it. But I do agree with you that like it should be for boys and girls. And let me ask you this, because he also brought up a point is, is it one of the things that you get this vaccine? It's been around since 2006. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the newer ones out there. 
Do we have a strong sense of how long we think it's going to last? Is it something that, you know, after like 10 years, you may have to go get another one? Yeah, so far we think that it has continued to be protective, and we're learning that from countries that really early on, back in 2006, like adopted it early. So we are going to learn more, but definitely in terms of the the more vulnerable time period when women are younger and getting those initial HPV vaccines, that, I mean, viruses or something like that, so far there is no mention of needing a booster. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Excellent question, Don. We appreciate that. Thank you. You know, so, so, you know, we're, we're going to, before we get to the break, cause we're going to go to break in a couple of seconds. I, I don't want to just start real quickly because Brenda and Marie, you guys have been on hold and you guys have been fantastic. So I'm going to start with Brenda first, and then we're going to really dive into your stories. Let's go with Brenda. Let's start with you. Tell us about your story. And I think, I'm not sure if it was Brenda or Maria, but one of you said there was no symptoms at all. So Brenda, were you experiencing any symptoms and when did you start noticing things? No, I didn't have any symptom, symptom at all. I just went to my apartment, you know, to my pap smear, and they frowned it. And then I got a second opinion. That's when I went to uh, University of Chicago to Dr. Lee, and she examined me, and it went on with that. I had the surgery, and then I did the chemo and the radiation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, And Dr. Lee, you know, I know you see a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. Take me back. You know, when you sat down, when you sit down with a patient like Brenda and you start really ironing out her things, is there a mindset of, I think, this person, how do you make the decision where it's going to be, I think you just need radiation and chemo and you're going to be good or, you know, you got you to gotta do surgery too? Well, a lot of it is based on the size of the tumor. If the tumor that somebody shows up with is a little bit larger, then they may not be a candidate for surgery. Now we can still cure those patients with chemotherapy and radiation. And then some women who have like an earlier cancer can have surgery, but they may need extra, like lesser amounts of radiation and chemotherapy. A lot of this is all based on clinical trials that have been done with women around the world in the U.S. and really establishing what the best treatment is with the least amount of side effects. And so it's always based on science of like what we know and what we've learned from women who've participated in trials before. And then now, then we have a standard treatment. All right. And how about you, Maria? Let's, let's go to your, begin, start your story before we go to break here. So what was your experience like and how did you first find out as well? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I wasn't a big fan of going to get checked up because my case, my pap smears became normal from a long time ago. So, you know, at the beginning, I was pretty consistent with getting checked out to make sure that it wasn't growing into something bigger. And then over time, you know, I kind of just forgot about it. And I had to go to get my birth control replaced. And that's where it was found out. So I, I feel pretty lucky that it happened at the time where it kind of went along with my birth control because otherwise, you know, I was afraid it would have been too long and then I would have not catch it on time. But once they found out that it was abnormal and I was referred to Dr. Lee, then, you know, she talked us through the whole process and, you know, not only the process, but I think that a lot of emotional, just the fact that, you know, that you're not going to be able to have, you know, just everything that goes along with it. She was very, very good. I, I felt like she knew exactly what I was feeling through and, and it, it, you know, she helped a lot through though. All right, we're going we're gonna to take a break right there because I really want to pick up right at that spot, you know, because just the emotional side of things. And, again, coping is one of the things I just really want to focus on here, too, today. So powerful stuff. When we come back, we will hear more from these two amazing cancer survivors. Listeners, last chance to ask your questions. The number to call in is the WVON listener hotline, 773-591-1690. Again, 
Welcome back. We're in the last segment of the Community Focus Health Hour. We're back with my guests, Dr. Anita Lee, Paris Thomas, Brenda E., and Maria T. One of the things, before we continue the stories, one of the things that, you know, Brenda Maria just mentioned was, you know, she went to go pick up her birth control. And as I was doing my research, I was saying that, you know, there's some risk factors out there. And so I figured, you know, well, let's, let's have that conversation, too. So briefly, Dr. Lee, what are some of the risk factors out there that kind of make you at a higher risk of developing this? Quite honestly, the biggest risk factor for anybody who has a cervix, because anybody who has a cervix is at risk, is not having the pap smear done, pap or HPV test, and then not following up with an abnormal pap smear. So many times I'll see women who have an advanced cancer who may just not have had the opportunity to follow up for many different barriers like that Paris mentioned. There are other risk factors. We know that there's some that are kind of a little controversial because we don't want them to like reinforce the idea of stigma. So there are, we know when we look at older studies that it may be women who maybe started having intercourse earlier. I, you know, there's some data on like whether or not people have, you know, other, you know, multiple partners, but most of my patients actually have only had like one partner or something like that because it doesn't matter. HPV is like, it affects everybody. And so I think I like to get away from those traditional risk factors to really show that like not getting a pap smear, not following up, those are the major risk factors in the United States. And then I think, you know, we know what we can do to really encourage women to get those screenings done. Okay. Quick question. We had a couple callers on, and I'm going to get back to my survivors here. But first up is Sharice. You have a question. Are you there with us? Yes. Hi. How are you all? Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. First question is, did HPV cause the cervical cancer that your panelists dealt with? Yes. Most cervical cancer almost like 95% more like or more is actually caused by one of the types of high-risk HPV. It's just kind of the known reason that, that women get HPV or anybody who has a cervix, quite honestly, can get HPV. And even after surgery, chemo, and all of the things that, that a woman would go through following that diagnosis, would they still have the HPV? That's an excellent question. It depends. Most women will clear their HPV after all of those treatments, but we will keep checking that from time to time to make sure we don't have to do anything else. All right. Fantastic questions. Next up is Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, you there? Yes. Hey, hey, thanks for calling. uh, Thank you. I was wondering if Equal Hope takes all women or if they only take some women And if I had a friend or if I wanted their services, how could I sign up? So, yes, Equal Hopes take all, we take all women, insured, uninsured, underinsured, anybody can come to us for services. And the best way to reach us is you can go to our website at www.equalhope.org or you can give us a call at 312-942-3368. That number is once again 312-942-3368. And we have navigators standing by. We are in the office Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. All right. Thanks a lot for your call. All right. So, Going back to Brenda. Brenda, so were you getting, were you having regular screenings when uh, you found out? Yes. Yes, I was. All right. How often were you going? And then I'll throw that same question to Maria. I would go because I was taking my birth control, so I'd just go get checked out. And uh, it's like every three months or something like that, you know, they'll check for whatever, whatever. And then that's when they found it. Yeah, but I was getting regular checkups. 
revenue screening for it. Maria? Oh, for me, it was a little different. I had, like I said, I was not a big fan, but I think I was just kind of going whenever my birth control was due, so maybe three three years is most of when the IUD had to be replaced. So I was pretty bad, and I don't recommend anyone to do that. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. And so I'll, I'll start with you there. I'll hold you right there, Maria. So everybody, like you both you guys have said, like an out-of-body experience. Like you're just like, this can't be happening to me. So what was the most frightening of this journey? And then also, what is the most encouraging thing about your journey? Yeah, the frightening to me was when they mentioned, you know, chemo and the radiation, you know, that was kind of scary. But the happy part was that I went through it and I had support. And Dr. Lee gave me the support on that team. So they pulled me through it and I got through it. So that was a good thing about it. And how about you, Maria? What was the most frightening thing for you? I mean, for me, it was not knowing what to expect because everybody's different. Everybody reacts differently. And to me, it was not knowing how the treatment was going to affect me. But again, like Brenda said, you know, just the support of your loved ones and knowing that it's going to be okay, just kind of take it step by step as hard as it is to try to, you know, focus and one foot in front of the other. It's got to be the best thing if you're going through this because, you know, you don't know, you don't know how you're going to react or what's going to happen or, you know, whatever it might be. So step by step and the support of your loved ones is the biggest, biggest thing that gets you through it. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Brenda, Maria, Maria, you had said that you're finished surgery and treatment in 2020, was, am I correct? Yes, September was my last treatment, yeah. Okay, and did you have the surgery as well as the radiation, or what was your treatment like? Yeah, so mine, my treatment was uh, Dr. Lee did a biopsy to find out, you know, what type of cancer or how far it was. After that, we did the surgery, and then after the surgery, when she found out the biopsy of pathology, right, <laughs> the pathology of my tumor, then that's when she recommended to go ahead. My treatment was radiation daily and one chemo weekly along with that. And definitely, when we, talk, when we think about like people that are going to go through this and they have the surgery, and she said she had radiation daily, how long is that process? Like how long is you know typically the radiation that people have to go through? So if it's surgery and then radiation for those who need that, then the radiation is usually about a month. If it's chemotherapy and radiation by itself and no surgery, that whole process is about two months. Okay. And how about you, Brenda? When were you, when was your surgery? About about 10 years ago, 10 years ago. And Mm -hmm. I did, I think the chemo was one day and the radiation was maybe twice a week, about six weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And you know, as healthcare providers, we're always trying to figure out and <laughs> kind of putting you on the spot here, but hopefully there's a good question here. We always want to be better, you know, and we, especially when you're dealing with something like cancer, we, we want to make your experience, your treatment, everything easier, you know? So what are some of the things that you think that could have happened or you wish had happened to make your diagnosis as well as your treatment easier? I'll start with Maria. I honestly, I couldn't ask for anything differently. I felt like everything was supposed to be on the, everything was supposed to be where it was. Like I said, I I usually didn't get my checkups like I was supposed to be, so I was being nutty. But 
thankfully it was cut out on time and I felt that everything, all my emotions and all my needs were put first to make sure that everything was going to be successful. And I, you know, I mean, nothing can prepare you for, you know, the way that you're going to feel after treatments and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, that early detention is a big thing. And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't change anything about my experience and situation. All right, good. How about you, Brenda? Same as Marie was saying, you know, I wouldn't change anything. It happened and I coped with it. I dealt with it. And the people were there at the time that I needed the support and the help. Yeah, and that's yeah, 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 and that's a really good thing too. I think is is uh, for me in my world, it's stroke, and I always tell my patients that the two most important things of your recovery are patients' motivation level and the support that they have around them. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. put those two things together, we can make a lot of things happen. And so, what kind of support did you need? And had you not anticipated even like, man, had I just talked to Dr. Lee about this, or had the social worker told me that, you know, what are some of those supports out there that that you needed once you got home? Definitely, you know, if I had any question, anything concerning, she was always there for me anytime, you know, she just did that and her nurse, you know, they just gave me the support I needed. So Dr. Lee and her team was great. You know, they were just great for me. How about you, Maria? For me, it was more after the emotional got out of the way and, you know, you have your family and loved ones to, to be there for you. To me, physically, it was it was tough, even though I felt like I could take on, you know, and I'm on top of the world. I was a Marine and I can do anything I can do. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know you're a Marine. You are yeah. tough, Maria. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it took me down. It really, it took a toll on me. You know, I had to take some time down to to regain my energy and the nausea, the vomiting, all that stuff. You know, it, it's like, man, I, I thought I got it, but yeah, it's you know, you have to go through the process and just, you know, take your medications to help you with the side effects and stuff like that. Eh? Yeah, don't try to take it on <laughs> without any medication because it's definitely tough. All right. And, you know, let's let's end the show before I'm going to give you guys a little bit of time to uh, to give your final thoughts. But I think one of the last things to really close the show out is you've gone through this, your journey. You know, you, you found out you had cervical cancer and then you went through the treatments. OK, Dr. Lee. What's the follow-up now for them? What is what should my patients that your patients that have experienced yeah. this? What what happens? For so the rest of them? I, you know, I feel like we're sort of connected because we continue our surveillance or follow-up to make sure that there's no signs of any cancer recurring. We do huh. that through pelvic exams and through continued Pap and HPV tests, and sometimes through things such as CAT scans or other types of imaging to make sure. And we, you know, we know it's scary to kind of enter that process of watching, but we know that we can be really successful. And, you know, I think obviously Maria and Brenda are biased because they they were my patients that I recruited for this show because they're (laughs) fantastic survivors. But I think that there's, you know, the main key is to make sure you feel comfortable with your doctor wherever you're getting care. And, and seek a doctor that you feel like you can talk to. I would say seeking a doctor who's a GYN oncologist, a GYN cancer specialist is really important for cervix cancer. And then using all of the community resources, the emotional resources, the physical resources that you can get. And you mentioned one other thing there. You said that you're going to do frequent PAPs or pelvic exams. 
does it change now? Is it, let's do it more frequently, or is it, you know, we can kind of get back into the regular rhythm? Yes, of it. it's a little bit more frequent. So initially, after you're done with your treatment, we'll start doing those pelvic exams every three to six months. And then eventually, we'd stretch them back out to once a year. But I do recommend patients who've had a cervical cancer experience stick with the roughly around once a year to still be seen. We don't follow the same guidelines as the ones we talked about earlier. Okay, and my last question to you, Dr. Lee, is your answer to everything perfectly. So I'm loving this. How often does it come back? You know, it can come back and it depends on the stage of the cancer initially. The longer and longer time that's gone by from the initial diagnosis, the risk decreases. So we can never make that cancer risk zero. So it's not it's not that I don't want to answer that question. Mm-hmm. It totally <laughs> depends on where people's cancer started from. So it's a little bit tricky to answer. So I'm going to balk a little bit. Right. I'll <laughs> take I'll take that answer. <laughs> Let's get some final thoughts here. First up, Paris Thomas. Final thoughts. If you need a free cervical screening or you need support or any type of you know just navigation to cervical screening please call us at equal hope once again our website is www.equalhope.org and our phone number is 312-942-3368 we have navigators that are ready to help you and we are ready to walk you through the process for whatever you need all right thank you so much maria i want to say something i didn't mention i with having to go through this i am the mother of two two boys, they're teenagers, and even before we find out that I had the cancer, we got them vaccinated. I feel that it's very important just because you don't have to go through the whole process that we went through because you can stop it before it even begins. So I would say, you know, prevention and obviously early detention, it's a big one. So, you know, you out there listening, please, you know, take care of yourself. (laughs) Fantastic. And Brenda? This pill, this Try to get some kind of uh, exam, no matter where at, just trying to get some kind of PAP or examination, you know, to uh, prevent this from happening. All right. Last but not least, Dr. Lee. Thank you for having this, uh, having us all here. I think for cervical cancer, don't be afraid of getting tested. Don't feel stigma or shame. Anybody who has a cervix needs to get tested, get screened. Make sure you up and know your results if you do get screened and then promoting HPV vaccine to everybody. Again, I think Equal Hope is a fantastic resource. CDC, HPV Roundtable, Foundation for Women's Cancer and the Illinois Breast and Cancer Cervical Cancer Program are fantastic as well. Their number is 1-888-522-1282 as well. So in case you have somebody who wants to get and doesn't have insurance and wants to go through Equal Hope or the program. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank our executive producers, Susan Peters, our technical producer and the man behind the glass, Titus Williams, all of you on Facebook Live, my amazing guests, but most importantly, you, our listeners. Join next week, Carl West, taking control of asthma on the South Side. Take it easy, everybody. The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.